Hey everybody, we want to start off this episode by saying that Not If I Reboot You First stands with Black Lives Matter and against, the and against the systemic brutality of the police system. We may not have said much explicitly on our social media, but that's because numbers-wise, me and Lindsay have bigger platforms on our personal accounts than on the podcast account. Between us, we've given hundreds of dollars to as many charities as we can, and we intend to continue doing so as long as we are able. Earlier, we announced that we would be celebrating Pride through June, and that's still our intention. But we have to say right now that Pride was started by the brave actions of trans women of color, and we wouldn't be here today without them. So we felt we'd be in remiss if we didn't do something to honor them beyond just donations. But then we figured that the last thing anyone needs right now is a pair of white people telling you how they think the narrative of black queer women should have been twisted. The best thing we can do in our platform is elevate black queer voices, so while our doors have always and will always be open to guests, we are especially reiterating that we would love to have you if you are a black queer podcaster who has an idea to reboot, adapt, or sequelize a property, and if you have that, then you're more than welcome here. This isn't just for June either, it's an open invitation for you to come here at any time. If you have a podcast or a YouTube channel or another thing that you want us to promote, then we will happily pop it into our friendship promo free of charge as always. And if we ever say something that we shouldn't have, including something said in this very statement, then let us know and we'll correct it as soon as possible. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, a podcast where we take our favorite properties and reboot them before Hollywood has a chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. I'm Lindsay and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Tanner, they, them, and this week I may or may not be tearing a strip off of a white woman who did another uh, boy-boy romance YA novel. We'll see how it goes. Okay. <laughs> this week... I am doing a reboot of the novel Whatever or How Junior Year Became Totally Fucked by S.J. Gosley. It is the story of a teenage slacker who basically accidentally realizes he's bi and then in, in this ensuing shenanigans realizes that his nemesis has actually just had a crush on him this whole time and then accidentally tries to seduce said nemesis' younger brother. Oh no. <laughs> but in the middle of all that, there's some... Um, questionable choices with the writing, um, blatant misunderstanding of what the hell bisexuality even means, and oh. also, uh, I, I'm pretty sure this is a Fifty Shades of Grey situation where she took one of her fanfics and changed up a whole bunch of stuff and popped it in, because this reads like a fanfiction. This reads especially, especially the teen sex scenes, which are always uncomfortable in a YA novel, but the teen sex scenes sound like something I would read on AO3. <sighs> so a lot of search replace. Great. Now, I'm not sure what pairing this was. Maybe it was Dean Castiel, but I'm not sure. Mainly because I'm not super well-versed in Supernatural. Uh, there's also a strong possibility that this was Styles x Derek. Hmm. <laughs> I only got the chemistry that apparently the shipper saw on Tumblr through yeah. the gifts. <laughs> hey, hey, here's, here's what I'll say. I watched almost all of Teen Wolf and I never saw any chemistry between Styles and Derek. I saw, like, four gift sets of Dean and Castile, and I was 100% on board. Yeah. I don't know if that's good acting or bad acting. Uh, I think it might be up to the writing on that one. We accidentally gay subtext. Yeah. 
I hope it was accidental because if it was straight up queer baiting... Mm. From what I hear of actual fans, it definitely just slipped into full-on queer baiting at some point. Ugh. And that's why Winona Earp is the better version of <laughs> Supernatural. <laughs> yes. No, no. The worst, uh, the worst example of queer baiting ever was on Degrassi, which I feel like I've already said that. And I watched Sherlock for like two. No, I I pushed to season three, and then I was like, "This is." It wasn't just the queer baiting; it was also everything got very boring. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like Sherlock is queer baiting the series. Yeah. But in terms of whatever, so here's. Here's the the plot of whatever. It starts at the beginning of junior year, shortly after the end of summer bash that our protagonist Mike Tate has attended. And so he went there and he got blackout drunk. He doesn't remember anything that happened. And then over the course of the first day of school, he is informed by his girlfriend that A, she's breaking up with him. B, he uh, she is recruiting him to be her vice president for the student body. And C, she saw him making out with a guy, and it was super hot, and he should be gay now. So right off the hop, this is some concerning uh, instructions. Um, I will admit that I have gone blackout drunk, and apparently all I did was throw up. Yeah. Yeah. Glad I stayed home that night. Our friends had to throw out a chair. <laughs> Yeah, so first off, this premise is a bit blown because um, having experienced blackout drunkness, don't know if any of that could have happened. Yeah, well, and also even, okay, even if we was heavy air quotes conscious enough to start making out with someone, that that is the most non-consensual. Yeah, and then like, how is he functioning the next day? I couldn't get out of bed. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't the next day. Maybe I'm misremembering that part because he does actually experience hangovers over the course of the narrative. Okay. <laughs> but it, yeah, it is very much a case of he got so drunk that he made out with another guy and then he couldn't remember it. Which is concerning. That's extremely concerning. And then his girlfriend, instead of like checking in to see if he's okay or anything, she's just like, by the way, I'd like to inform you that you made out with this Catholic boy that you hate and you are now gay. Okay, I shouldn't say teenagers are stupid, but teenagers make very quick judgments. Yeah, oh, th there's a lot of quick judgments in this book, and you know what, I'm okay with that. The problem I have with, or one of the problems I have with this book, is the fact that so many people take a majority of the quick judgments as gospel. <sighs> is it just being a teenager? I will say that throughout the book, Mike reiterates that he's not gay, he's bi. Well, first he has to figure out that he likes guys in the first place. But once he's yeah. managed to like figure that out in his own brain, and then he starts telling people, he tells them that he's bi. And yeah. then everyone else says, no, you're actually gay. And Mike's like, oh, fine, I guess if you want to say that. But it's like, that's, that's not how it works. Yeah. That's, that's bi erasure, you, you fuckers. Yeah. There's even, there's a, there's a scene where his, his grandma shows up at Thanksgiving and his grandma's like a retired Air Force captain or something. And she's like, Michael, I hear that you have decided to become homosexual. Actually, that's not how it works. And I also heard that you are trying to tell people you are bi, which is not a real thing. No, but I am. I'm trying to. And if you don't have a boyfriend, that you're not actually homosexual. And I shall declare this to your entire family. And the whole thing is played for laughs. That's, that's not good. Yeah, that's, that's like the worst 
part. That's the the most explicitly worst part. That's the most how this the most most textually worst part of the book. The other worst parts are like subtext. Great. <laughs> I miss ancient Greece right now because everything was so straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you mean gay forward. Yes, yes, gay forward. <laughs> so yeah, he. So he gets Roten. I will say his his ex girlfriend Lisa. She doesn't black. No one ever blackmails him, which is nice. Yeah. That's a st- a, a lot of his angst. The textual angst is, in, angst is internal, and then I had angst because, hmm, I don't think you wrote this very well, Gosley. Yeah. I don't give her the benefit of the doubt, but still... I, will, I only give exactly enough benefit as a person deserves. Okay. And s- some people have run out of benefits after the fact. Yeah. Uh, on my Glee podcast, I'd like to let you guys know that Leah Michelle has retroactively run out of benefit of the doubt, and so now I'll have to dunk on her extra hard to make up for the times where I was nice to her. <laughs> but anyways, the point that's not the point. The point is, he gets, not blackmailed, but he does kind of get press-ganged into helping Lisa be the vice president so that she can be president of the junior student body. And because of that, he also gets roped into the rest of the student council, which includes his nemesis, Rook Wallace. Rook Wallace is Mike's nemesis because he beat the shadow of him when the two were in Little League. And then, like, at some point in middle school, he just started acting really nice to Mike. And Mike's like, this is a threat. He's smiling too much. He's opening doors for me. I don't trust like that. <laughs> I mean, fair. There's a certain uncanny valley point where niceness can enter into. And then... Here's the thing, Rook Wallace is the love interest, and at a certain point, like, they do actually talk to each other, and Mike realizes that, oh, the beating him up was, beating Mike up was just misplaced, like, gay angst, and I don't know what to do with these feelings, so I guess I have to punch a boy. <laughs> Which, okay, that's not great, but, you know, that's a little bit more understandable. And you know what, I do actually like the, the eventual relationship between Mike and Rook, because... Rook is not. Rook is never anything but nice to Mike. Yeah. The one good thing about the writing, um, if if you haven't read the book already, because I re- I reread the book for the podcast that everything is fresh in my memory, so that I could criticize th- things better. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the writing is good in the sense that you feel that Rook is like hiding something from Mike, and you think it's something nefarious, but no, it's not nefarious. It's just that he's been he's been pining for Mike, and he's been trying to be friends for, like, the past four years. And Mike has never seen that as anything but some kind of twisted mockery until mm-hmm. Rook straight up says, no, it's because I fell in love with you, and I don't know what to do with these feelings. And Mike's like, oh. Oh! Hmm. I mean... You have been nice to me for four years, and you are nicely shaped. So maybe I should reconsider some things I've said about you. About being the spawn of Satan and a goat. (laughs) But meanwhile, while all this is happening, a lot of it... Here's the thing, also. Most of the plot doesn't happen to, like, the last 80 pages of the book. Oh, pacing... This is only, like, a 240-page book, but still. I feel like this could have benefited for 100 pages. Oh, also... Also... While in my mind's eye, this would be good as a TV show, a part of me also says, hey, let's just rewrite the book itself. <laughs> okay, yeah. This is one where the medium doesn't necessarily have to change. It, c- it can stay a book for all as I care. Yeah, it's just we're putting on our editorial caps and going like, hmm, 
gonna need a couple more pages here. Yeah. Just take the red pencil. Mm-hmm. The other part of the plot that I really like in this is the the sub the, the so it doesn't just go Mike doesn't like Rook and then he does like Rook. There's a middle part of that, and the middle part is Mike sees Rook's younger brother. Okay, so while I was rereading this, I made a tweet, and the tweet was something along the lines of rereading books hits different when you have new friends that share the names of characters in the book. Mm-hmm. So Rook has a younger brother, and he's very gangly and goth and emo, and he's like one of the most unpopular kids in school, and his name is Serge. But that's not important right now. <laughs> What is important is that Mike sees Serge getting bullied while he's walking home from school and he gets his friends to go help Serge and then they essentially adopt Serge into the friend group. And yes, this is a friend group that does involve like playing shitty garage band music and smoking weed and Mike's friend Cam doing terribly stupid dangerous stunts in an abandoned parking lot. So not our group that we would understand. <laughs> no. Well, maybe Ryan sometimes. Yeah. And I mean, there was the one time when we were starting out playing D&D. It was winter and we managed to pile like eight people into the Honda Civic on a very icy road. That was a mistake. Yeah. But no, I'm talking like Cam Cameron pulling up with his bike and declaring that he's going to jump the van. Yeah, none of our friends did that. No. But yeah, so Mike and his group kind of adopt Serge Wallace as a friend just to keep him safe. And then Rook gets really concerned and then like kind of accepts it but not before he has oh yeah rook has an enforcer i don't think rook knows why he has an enforcer but he has an enforcer in the form of chris leone who works with mike at the cheese shop and we don't know why there's a cheese shop in a small philadelphia town we just accept it the the pennsylvania part isn't really an important part of it it's just standard american setting yeah it's kind of flyover country this story could easily take place in regina yeah, hell, a cheese shop here has more of a reason to exist than small-town Pennsylvania. Yeah. Unless we're talking, like, farm country, and it's just like, this is an extension of the dairy farm? It's it's not farm country. It's like a, I think it's kind of like a moose jaw. Ah. Where it's, it's like caught somewhere between a town and a city. Okay, but it's like out in the middle of buttfuck nowhere? Pretty much. Yeah. It's extremely flat, and winter hits you <laughs> like a brick. <laughs> yeah, so they're probably in Amish country. They're just like the largest community for Yeah, something always. like that. I, I mean, they definitely say like what the town is, but I didn't, I didn't rem I can't remember, and I didn't bother to check if it was a real place. <laughs> American geography is mostly like non-essential anyway. American geography is fake. That's why they can just pop a metropolis in, in Illinois and say, this is fine. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> at some point, Chris Leone beats up Mike Tate and says, stay away from Serge. And Mike is like, why do I stay away from him? I'm trying to protect him. And then over the course of the next day, he realizes, oh no, Rook thinks I'm trying to seduce his little brother. No, I'm just trying to keep your little brother safe because he he's the kid who is either invisible or is going to attract a bully. Yeah. Fortunately, they do help him defend himself, and at some point he does gain a reputation for kicking people right in the junk. Good. <laughs> Good lad. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's around this point where Mike goes and confronts Rook and says, Listen, I'm not trying to seduce your little brother. I'm just trying to keep him safe, because fuck if you're doing anything, do you even know he's getting bullied? 
Except a good chunk of that is actually just in Mike's internal monologue. Most of the spoken word is like, I actually like you. Fuck, I actually like you too. And then they make out. Do you want to go to a movie? Oh, okay. I don't know, I guess. <laughs> so that's one change I'm making is I'll make, have Mike actually voice his feelings more instead of just doing a whole long internal monologue yeah. and call people out. Like, That's there is a good. part near the end of the book where he says, ah, oh, I hate that people keep on trying to make up their minds for what I should be instead of giving me a chance to define who I am. But he never actually gets the chance to tell people, hey, you need to shut up and let me be bi. And I am bi. And it doesn't matter if I date a thousand boys, I'm still bi. Yeah. That's how it works. Lisa, I know you didn't like the way I fondled your breasts, but that's just because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> that is actually the, a paraphrased passage from the book. <laughs> and like most teenagers don't know what they're doing anyway. And the American sex ed education system does not help. Oh god, no. It actively hinders. Though so ours wasn't much help, but it, I think in our case... Or at least my case, it was more like it was way too clinical. Yeah. I knew the body parts pretty well. Fuck if I know what to do with them. So, the reason I like this book, despite all of its faults, is because I really like, like I said, I do like the way the romance kind of develops between Mike and Rook. And I like Mike as a character. I like him because he's he's more of an average teen than other books that claim, oh, I'm just an average teen. He isn't describing himself in terms that are genuinely flattering, but you're too much of a dingus to realize it. Yeah, <laughs> the the only t the only time he like describes himself being like decently good looking, it's not like at the beginning of the book while he dramatically looks in a mirror. It's when he's getting ready for his first date with Rook, and like he tried to get a pep talk from someone, and they just nagged him about how he should actually bathe once in a while. And he's like, you know what? Screw you! I do shower, and I brush my teeth, and I even comb my hair today. So take that, JJ. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, re I really like him because he's, okay, so he, he is like a slacker, but honestly, I feel like the slacker teen is more, um, representative of teens these days than, like, even a Simon Spears from a Simon versus the Homo Sapiens agenda. Mm -hmm. The only way you get more, I would say, legitimate is from, well... Obviously, books written by actual queer people. Yeah. And hey, I will say, I, I still really love Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda, and Becky Albertalli did good with that, and I still really like the movie. I think it was executed very well, but I don't blame people for being suspicious by the fact that it's a queer male-male uh, book written by a straight white woman. Yeah. And like, like that's the thing, is that I'm not going to like automatically throw those out, but if people tell you they're suspicious of just a straight white woman writing a guy-guy romance because of the possibility that it's literally just because it's titillating and sexy, like, I don't blame people for having those concerns, those legitimate concerns, because they're proven time and time again. Whatever yeah. kind of <laughs> validates that, pretty much. Yeah, like, there's a big problem with that still lingering within, like, fan fiction and the uh, Yaoi boys love scenes yeah plus all of the internalized misogyny yeah like i i am like i read all those dissertation tumblr posts about how a lot of girls kind of cut their teeth on writing romance by writing guy guy stuff because it feels safe and there's like i'm probably gonna say this wrong but it was something along the lines of they don't have to worry about women getting into uncomfortable situations if you just remove them from the equation entirely yeah so you get nothing but men being nice. <laughs> and I, I do get that, but it takes on a different form when you're 
writing to be published and then holding something up and saying, this is the representation we need, because not necessarily. Yeah. Like, if, if someone was having, like, bi feelings and they didn't know what was going on, I absolutely would not recommend this book, because mm-hmm. it doesn't validate any of the times Mike tries to tell people, I'm bisexual, I'm still interested in girls, it's just I'm focusing on Rick Wallace because all the feelings right now. Yeah. So, one of the major changes I want to make is be more validating of Mike's bisexuality. Now, because of that, there is... We don't necessarily have to remove the people insisting that he's gay. We just have to, at some point, have him call them out and say, you need to stop this. Yeah. Like, you you are not allowed to label me as whatever you want. But yeah, so definitely make Mike's bisexuality more valid. Help maybe even have Rook say something like... It could even be another reason that Mike ends up going with Rook is that on top of all the other stuff he realizes he actually likes about him, Rook can like say something along the lines of, I, I'm not going to say you're not bisexual. If you say you're bisexual, that's awesome. Yeah. I just like the fact that you like me back after four years of me going, oh no! <laughs> what have I done? He's never going to like me! He, 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 Rook does straight up saying, I have been pining after you since middle school. And Mike basically <laughs> goes, pining? You are pining? Who the hell even says pining? <laughs> Just wistfully looking out a window like a Jane Austen character. Pretty much. <laughs> Actually, yo, th- th- that's what it is. Rook Wallace is kind of like the person in what you'd expect from a standard YA novel, and then Mike Tate just rolls in. <laughs> Get in, bitch, we're figuring out our sexuality. We're gonna go to the movie theater, and everything will be extremely fine. Yeah. <laughs> Another great thing about Mike's story is that he... Aside from figuring out his feelings about himself and Rook, a lot of it is also him just kind of realizing he has more friends than he realized. Nice. Because one of these subplots at the beginning of the book is that he joins intramural baseball, which is like, it's just fun baseball, basically. It's not the official school team. And he says that he'd never been in baseball since Little League because he lost the taste for it after Rook beat the shit out of him. Fair. And so, but he ends up joining, and he's still really good at it, and he, like, he recruits some people that he knows, but then because they're in baseball together, he becomes friends with them, and he has, a, like, a very distinct supporting cast that grows around him, not just of his slacker garage brand friends, but eventually the other people that he pulls into his uh, friend circle. Nice. And then, of course, everyone starts just kind of interdating each other. Like, there are at least two people who say, I will only join your intramural baseball team if you help me date your other friend. <laughs> and Mike is like, why, why is this the currency? Why is everyone trying to get in relationships? Because teenagers. Because teenagers. So, amongst his friends, I mentioned Cam, who does terrible bike stunts. Cam is also the kind of person who, like, wears a fake mustache to school for a week because it's a test drive so that his Halloween costume can be Magnum (laughs) P.I. He also is friends with Meckles, Mark Meckles, and his sister Deanna, who is referred to as Girl Meckles. One of the running gags is that, like, so Meckles is built like a brick shithouse. Oh! <laughs> and Deanna doubly so. Oh, wow! And Deanna is dating Cam, and no one can figure out what either of them see in each other, but they are probably the most stable relationship through the entire novel. 
<laughs> Good for them. It's like, even at the beginning, like, the other friends just see the two of them making out, and they're like, you know, we're so desensitized, this might as well happen. <laughs> Are they the makeout teens? They're very much the makeout teens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the. In the TV show 16, there was a designated makeup couple who the camera would sometimes cut to. Yeah. Or, like, something weird would happen and they would get disrupted. Ah, I think the girl, like, during their zombie apocalypse special, the girl definitely ate the guy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he's also got... They've got Justin, also known as Jay. He is basically, if you've ever read Scott Pilgrim, he's the young Neil of the group. He's like a year below them, and he, he was the most recent adoptee before they adopted Serge. Ah, yes. Now I remember. Also, Jay kind of becomes one of the first people that Mike tells, except not really, because he was one of the people who saw Mike making out with a guy at the party that happened before the book started. Okay. And so Jay's like, please don't hurt me, I won't tell anyone! And Mike's like, why would I hurt you? But also, yeah, please don't tell anyone, I'm still figuring things out. I don't understand this pornography. <laughs> again that's pretty much what he says <laughs> i think that's another th- if this were to be a tv show we could definitely do the slow burn more and have mike's like look at mike's friendships a bit more also dive into the lives of some of his friends as well because they have enough happening behind the scenes that we hear about that they could definitely carry their own small arcs if this were to be a tv show like mm-hmm. examining why cam and deanna work or looking at Dottie trying to flirt with uh, Meckles, even though Meckles is terrified of women. Oh. <laughs> now, there is one thing, because Mike has another friend, and Mike, his friend is Omar. He is the only non-white character mentioned in the book, so that's something we definitely have to change. Mm-hmm. But also, he's the only one of Mike's friends who becomes uncomfortable with him after he comes out to the friend group, and it's because he's religious. And I feel like just kind of stacking all of those things on a single character... Yeah, no. It it doesn't quite sit right with me. Yeah. So that's something I would change. And I think I would actually change it to having either Cam or Meckles be the ones who aren't super uncomfortable. Because, like, the two people that Mike mentions are his rocks are Cam and Omar. Yeah. And, like, he's really shaken up when Omar is the one who just kind of gives him the silent treatment after coming out because he expected him to take it super easy. And so I think in my version I would actually switch it. And I'd have Omar be another person he comes out early and Omar is like, hey, that's great. That's fine. Uh, I'll make a funny joke about how you're still terrible at relationships. And Mike's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Anyways, but we're cool. (laughs) We're cool. Great. But then when he comes out to Cam, Cam is the one who just kind of has a little freak out and leaves. Yeah. Also, in the book, the, the scene where Mike, like, confronts Omar, it's not really a confrontation. It's just like, well, I think we're gonna be better now. Uh, and that that that's not good enough. Yeah, because I don't I don't want a queer narrative to one of the morals to be well. Some of your friends might act shitty to you, but if they were your friend before, then you just have to deal with it. Like no, it's your friends might act shitty to you, but you call them out on that, and if they refuse to change and accept you, they're no longer your friend. Yeah, and I think this is where a TV show would come in handy because we can have a whole episode where Mike and the rest of the friend group just come down hard on Cam because in this version I would be changing it to Cam just come down hard on him and say, "Hey, you giving Mike the silent treatment and not accepting him for liking guys is a terrible thing to do, and we're gonna all break up with you if you can't accept that." 
and then yeah. Cam can come in, and the onus is on him. That See, that's the other thing, is that the onus is kind of put on Mike to, quote-unquote, apologize for being queer. Oh, shouldn't have to do that. Exactly. The, like, the, the person struggling, the person who's marginalized, it's never on them to explain, except for the, the, sm- the small... No, not even that. It's... They shouldn't have to justify who they are. Yeah. And you don't get to justify not liking who they are, because there is no justification. Yeah. There is no excuse other than, I was a shitty, stupid person, and I am going to endeavor to be better, and I accept any call-outs you have for me before, because I was a shitty person. Yeah. Also, uh, I just remembered another shitty thing that happened. So there's a Halloween party. Okay. And this is probably the most uncomfortable, th- okay, other than the blackout makeout. The most uncomfortable thing is Mike basically gets forced by his new cheerleader friends to go to the Halloween party dressed as a cheerleader in a hand-me-down uniform that super does not fit him. Mm. And the girls make really gross comments about like, ooh, and if you bend over, I'm sure you'd be able to give everyone a show. Oh, God, no, make it stop. That Yeah, it's it's extremely gross, and I would have lit the book on fire. Yeah? I'm su- honestly, I'm surprised I didn't already, but when I first read it, I was an idiot, and I was like, haha, funny boy in dress. And the second time I read it, I was like, fuck, I gotta power through, because I know there's parts I like, and this is technically for work now. Yeah. So I would definitely take that part out, just yeah. entirely. Look, funny shit with dudes who identify as dudes and dresses should be safe for like something about Catherine the Great because like every Thursday they had a ball where all of the courtiers would dress up in opposite gender clothing. Yeah, different gender clothing. Yeah. In different gender clothing. I'm all for normalizing cross-dressing whether you're like if you're cis or trans or just not not dressing according to gender specifics. I guess is the best way to phrase it. I'm all for normalizing that. But that's not what happened in the book. The book yeah. is treated like a hilarious joke because the queer guy is dressed in girls' clothing and knew that's, that's, ooh, that's sexy because it's a boy in a skirt. And like, please stop writing these teens just to satisfy your own kinks. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah. Like, it's, it's also, I, I think goes without saying that the whole scene is transphobic too. Yeah. So, we like there should be a Halloween party because the, the ha- Halloween party important plot point because yeah. it's the first time he sees the first guy that he make out, made out with when he was drunk, and oh yeah, I should change that too. Yeah, maybe I don't know. My only experience was me blacking out and then regaining consciousness for a little bit with my head in the toilet. <laughs> yeah, like that's what I'm saying. <sighs> It, it doesn't work both morally and uh, anatomically. Yeah. Now, to be fair to me, I'm a lightweight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Holy smokes. But w- what I'm trying to say is that all, the, all of Mike's makeouts, like, he, he should be sober during them. Yeah. If he's going to make out with someone, he's got to be, well, okay, maybe a drink? Yeah, like, you, you can have one drink and not be drunk. Yeah. I mean, I say I'm a lightweight, but, like, my alcohol tolerance is probably greater than what I was when I was, like, first year university. Yeah, all that wine's desensitizing you. Yeah. (laughs) But I would would rather him and anyone else be stone-cold sober when this is happening just to avoid any potential discomfort. Like, do the complete opposite of what the book did. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Um... Oh, and 10 Things I Hate About You, there was one scene where 
Kat, they're at a party. She gets super drunk. She compliments Heath Ledger's eyes, saying, oh, there's a little bit of green in there. And then, (laughs) (laughs) That's far more realistic. Maybe, maybe the main character compliments another dude on how pretty he is and then just pukes all over his shoes. (laughs) Uh, I do appreciate that. And you know what? Mm -hmm. Okay, hold that thought. Because I'm thinking, for the beginning, because, like, the plot is kicked off when, like, people see Mike making out with a guy... Ah. And, like, they just go with it, essentially. Yeah. So what if, at the end of Summer Bash, like, Mike and JJ, because that's the guy that he made out with, yeah. they're both sober, but they are they both get involved in a game of uh, spin the bottle? Yeah. Do teens still do spin the bottle? I don't know. Or would it be better for it to be truth or dare? I think truth or dare is still being played. Okay, so it, it can be truth or dare. And someone will be like, oh, Mike, you should make out with JJ because you're both boys and you don't really like each other much. And Mike is like, you're right, I don't like him, but I never went for refuse a dare. <laughs> and so then they do a, a, a smooch. And then later on, JJ will show up and be like, Michael, I liked that. And Michael's like, uh, I don't know what you mean. And then they make out. And that's the one that like everyone sees is like a more sloppy make out. And then Mike can play it off and say, I was actually extremely drunk when that happened. But the truth is, he was sober, and he liked it. Ah. And then, we can fast forward (laughs) to the Halloween party. First off, give Michael a different costume. Yes. What what would be a good costume that is still queer, but not transphobic or punching down or any shit like that? Oh, why did I think a Power Rangers outfit? Oh, yes. Put put him in a Power Rangers morph suit. Yeah. No, oh no, that'd still be uncomfortable because you can still see everything. Yes. Though it is Pennsylvania. Maybe he puts on long underwear underneath it. <laughs> oh, then that'd cut off the circulation probably. Yeah. He could uh he could show up in like a David Bowie outfit. Everyone throws yeah. it together. Yeah. Because his band is playing too. Oh yeah. So he could dress up as like Ziggy Stardust or the Thin White Duke or Yeah. Whatever persona. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the party we he gets extremely drunk at. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is only appropriate when you are dressing yourself up as a rock star. David Bowie once survived two years on nothing but um, I think it was milk, peppers, and cocaine. Oh, that's not good, honey. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, okay. So here's here, here's how the order of events will go. So we'll get to the party, and he'll be sober, and then they play some stuff, and then Mike finally gets to talk with JJ. And they have a, a sober, another sober, sloppy makeout. Yeah. And then Mike's like, listen, you're, you're great at kissing, but I still don't know where I stand. And also, I still genuinely don't like you that much. Yeah. And Jay just like, you know what? I don't really like you either. <laughs> are we both just throwing ourselves at the only queer person in town? I think we are. Well, fuck. Yeah. And then that's when Mike goes and drinks all his feelings, and everyone's like, you should slow down. And Mike's like, I can quit any time I want. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when Rook comes up to him. Now, in the book, Mike had another drunken makeout with Rook. This time around... We are doing the 10 things I hate about you suggestion. Yeah. Where Rook is talking to Mike and like, you're really drunk. Like, yeah, and you're really pretty. Like, okay, I, I appreciate that. And I've wanted to hear that for a long time. But I, I really don't think this is the time. Yeah, but I see the way you look to me. 
And now you see the way I'm looking at you. (laughs) 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 And just an exasperated, I guess we're breaking up the baking soda. (laughs) And then the next morning, someone will be like, Mike, you threw up all over Rook Wallace. And he's like, victory! (laughs) Wait, I think he confessed his love for me, too. Shit! I don't know how to respond to that. (laughs) I love you, honey, but, um, could you stop the projectile vomiting? (laughs) Also, if you're wondering about these teens doing a lot of alcohol, don't worry. They also smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. How else do you form a garage band? Like, honestly, there's a lot more stuff. Teens just aren't gonna do stuff. Yeah. Like, if there's a will, there's a way. Exactly. And it's best for parents just to, like, basically coach them through it. Be like, okay, uh, my parents' rules were, like, I could drink at their place underage, but they had to be on the premises. Mm-hmm. My parents pretty much had the same rules, except I never did, because before they announced that I was allowed to do that, they also informed me of all the terrible times that parties with alcohol had gone wrong in their youth, and so by the time I was at teen drinking age, I was like, I don't want to be drinking teen. All I've heard are horror stories. Why would I do this? And also, beer tastes like grass. Beer is an acquired taste. (laughs) And I have chosen not to acquire it. Yeah. That, that's fair. But like, now I'm like, ah, beer. It's nice. It doesn't get me drunk as fast as wine. And wine just says in my gut. Yeah. It's because you're not also eating a baguette. Anyway. Anyway. Teens so doing I'm, stupid stuff, the series. Yeah. I mean, pr- the series pretty much, okay. Ah. The, I pretty much covered all the thing I want to. Um, the other crud parts in the book are Mike's relationship with his family he has a sister and a single mom because him and his sister were both basically mail order sperm donors, essentially. Oh, I know someone like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I think there's a line where he says that his mom went to like the same sperm donor for both of them, so that they'd be full siblings. But that's neither here nor there. It doesn't actually matter. Yeah. Um, it that he has a good relationship with his mom because she's very. She's very accepting of him when she's not busy working. She like th- she realizes that he's going through stuff like pretty early on in the book, and she's like, "And maybe by Thanksgiving you'll be able to bring a girlfriend around, pause, or a boyfriend." And he's like, "What do you mean?" And Mom's like, "It's fine. Whatever's going on, it's fine." <laughs> he's like, oh, "Okay, thanks, Mom." Um, although, I, I, if I remember correctly, he also says that he's pretty sure she knows because she found his experimental pornography. Ah, gotta hide that better. And then his sister <laughs> is great as well. He has a really good relationship with her and her imaginary friend and her hermit crabs. <laughs> so that's all stuff that would stay if this were to become a TV series. If yeah. this were to become a TV series... I'd keep it pretty close to the book, except for the things I said I would change and the stuff that would be expanded on, like give some of his friends subplots because they there's enough characterization just in like what we see uh, from Mike's point of view that they could definitely carry some plots of their own if they wanted to. And the book ends like it only covers four months, really. It goes from the beginning of the school year to Christmas Eve. Oh. Okay. And so if this were to be a show, you could easily get four seasons out of the a semester, two semesters for junior year and two semesters for senior year. And this okay. seems like the kind of thing that, you know, it would be on MTV if MTV was still making scripted stuff. 
Yeah. Um, but I guess actually, no, no, we could easily throw this on uh, Netflix if we made yeah. it. We could, I mean, we could probably get away with putting it out on Freeform. If Freeform had fucking Shadowhunters. <laughs> yeah. Hey, everybody. Once again, we are forgoing a friendship promo to ask instead that you donate to local bail funds and BIPOC charities. I was fortunate enough earlier today to find a list of such charities in Canada, which we will be sharing in the podcast description as well as on the podcast Twitter. These charities include the Black Solidarity Fund, Black Youth Helpline, Black and BC Community Sport Fund for COVID-19, Black Legal Action Center, Hogan's Alley Society, Vancouver Black Therapy and Advocacy Fund, Respecting Aboriginal Values and Environmental Needs, or RAVEN, Catherine White Holman Wellness Center, and Sage Community Food Bank. We also ask that you support our trans siblings in the States and abroad through charities such as Lambda Legal and the Homeless Black Trans Women Fund. Black Lives Matter, Fuck Turfs, All Cops Are Bastards, stay safe, stay vigilant. Thank you. So, Lindsay, where can people find you on the internet? I can be found on Twitter at lindsaym476. It's Lindsay spelled with an A, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart and Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. You can also find this very podcast on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for not afraid about you first. And there's not really a bisexual noise I can make for this joke. <laughs> bisexual screaming into the void. There we go. You can also email us at notafirebootyoufirst at gmail.com or you can send us your comments, critiques, criticisms, and if you have like a friendship promo or even just like a proof that you want us to read on your behalf, please send us those too. You could even ask to be a guest, and if you do, all we ask is that you send us a hint instead of the entire idea because we like being surprised. And you can also rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, and if you can't find us on your podcatcher of choice, then contact me and I'll try and get us in there. Not If I Reboot You First is a member of the Corner Podcast Network, and you can find out more about the other awesome shows we share the network with at CornerPodNet on Twitter. And last but not least, our cover art, as always, is by Alex, a.k.a. Pachu, when her work can be found on ptchew.com. And our theme music is done by our friend Sean Clake, and you can contact us to find out how to contact him if you'd like music of his own for your own. So, Lindsay. Tanner. What are you planning on doing next week? What's your hint? So next week's podcast, I am going to adapt something that involves a lot of queer women and uh, kicking Nazis in the face. Hell yeah. And so we're going to hear all about that next week, but not if we reboot you first. Bye.